Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about calcification conditions. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. All right. Good afternoon, Steve. Hello, Ron. So now today is the day you get to do soup day at your uh, local organic garden in Clearwater. It has nothing to do with feeding the homeless. This is using stuff that you grow in your garden to make soups. And we had an episode regarding organic gardening and food. Is there anything you'd like to say about what's going on today to kind of update people? No, it's an annual thing. And, uh, you know, this is at the Clearwater Community Garden and everybody there has their own plot. And so actually some of the stuff that's going in my soup, uh, not only came from there, but it, most of it actually came from my home garden, including my tower garden, which is where I grow my herbs like cilantro and mint and um, parsley. So I'm putting parsley and cilantro in it, but I also had some uh, green onions that I chopped up and put in there as well as some bok choy. And man, it really came out good this time. That's great. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll be interested to hear what other people think of it. So that isn't what we were actually going to be talking about, but I thought it would be something to share at the beginning. What we're going to be talking about has to do with calcification conditions. These are conditions where a person has depositing of calcium in the body or a buildup of calcium. We talked about arterio and atherosclerosis, which is a calcification condition. And we talked about urinary tract infections, And we're going to talk about kidney stones, which is having to do with calcification, but decided to put it into a separate episode, this one. So kidney stones are probably the most commonly known calcification condition. Because people know about that and not so much the other ones, what are some of the other types of calcification conditions that can occur? Well, let's start out by going over the fact that approximately 99% of your body's calcium is in your teeth and bones. Oh, okay. Whereas, you know, the other 1% is found in the blood, muscles, the cells, and the fluid outside the cells, and other various body tissues. Calcification is a condition where calcium builds up in various parts of the body where it shouldn't be found in high concentrations. And this can cause, you know, these areas to harden and disrupt normal function. So the most notable places in the body where calcification can occur are the small and large arteries, the heart valves, the brain where it's known as cranial calcification, 
the joints and tendons, such as knee joints and rotator cuff tendons, and even the spinal joints causing bone spurs, uh, the soft tissues like the breasts, uh, muscles, and fat, and the kidneys, bladder, and gallbladder. As far as specific conditions, you know, we'll, we'll go over these in just a little bit. All right. Well, let's start out with kidney stones because that's what most people are familiar with. So what causes them to develop? Well, you know, there are several factors involved with kidney stone formation in the body. Uh, it could be due to just one or a combination of these potential causes. So one is a decrease in urine volume causing the urine to be very concentrated. And this can you know, simply be due to not drinking enough water and being dehydrated. Uh, another one is the urine containing more crystal forming substances that it can effectively dilute. And these include calcium, oxalic acid, and uric acid. And also the urine could be lacking substances, including magnesium, which help prevent crystals from sticking together. So you then have an ideal environment for kidney stones to form. Now, there's actually four main types of kidney stones, and knowing the type of kidney stone can help to determine the cause, and that can potentially help to reduce your risk of getting more kidney stones. Okay, so let's find out what the four are. Yeah, so before I do that, you know, if possible, it's a good idea to try to save your kidney stones if you pass one so that you can bring it to your doctor to get it tested to see what type of stone it actually is. Okay. All right, well, let's go through these. You know, by far the most common type of kidney stone is a calcium stone, which makes up as much as 80% of all kidney stones. And almost all of these are composed of calcium oxalate. Uh, there's also calcium phosphate stones, but those are much less common. So I'm going to focus on calcium oxalate stones for the time being. All right. Now to understand how these form, you see, you know, the urine contains chemicals that normally prevent oxalate molecules from sticking together and forming crystals. But if you have too little urine or too much oxalate, the oxalate can crystallize and bind with calcium to form stones. And really what's underlying this is the fact that you either haven't been drinking enough water and are dehydrated and eating a diet that's too high in oxalate, protein, or table salt. Now, too much protein raises the chances of all types of kidney stones, and too much table salt increases the amount of calcium in the urine, which can combine with any extra oxalate that's there. So I throw this word oxalate out, and it'd be best if we you know, look at where this comes from. Okay. It, it mainly comes from you know, many food sources, including spinach, rhubarb, nuts, including almonds, legumes, including peanuts and cashews miso soup, wheat bran, beets, chocolate, french fries and baked potatoes, and okra. Uh, some sources say that too much vitamin C in the form of ascorbic acid can make your body produce oxalate. And also soft drinks, especially dark cola varieties, can increase your risk of developing kidney stones by about 33% due to three different reasons. Phosphoric acid probably is one of them, three. That's the first one, and that's a chemical that creates an acidic environment in your kidneys, allowing kidney stones to form more easily. Uh, number two, many of these sodas usually contain large amounts of caffeine, which, as you know, is a diuretic, and this can lead to dehydration, and that's the most common risk factor for kidney stone formation. And three, they're loaded with high fructose corn syrup, which just so happens to have been shown in medical studies to increase the urinary excretion of calcium, oxalate, and uric acid 
which, you know, put together greatly increases your risk of kidney stones. Yep. Now, interestingly enough, there was a podcast and I think it was Lewis Howe. He was an ex-football player that has a podcast. It's really popular. It's Lewis Howe or Lewis Howe's. And I think he had on Dr. Gundry from the plant paradox and it was either Lewis Howe or it was Tom Bill you or one of these very well-known podcast hosts and who is like getting their beef from cows that are raised grass fed and doing all the things right, except he still drinks sodas. And so Dr. Gundry went over how that just is not going to work and gave him a recipe to make something like a soda that he can drink so he can be satisfied for that urge without it killing him or harming his health. And he said, yeah, you get some, some carbonated water and you get some balsamic vinegar and you put like a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar in with the carbonated water and it'll give you that coloring and there'll be a little bit of sweetness since balsamic vinegar comes from grapes, but it won't be overly sweet. And he could probably even put in some drops of stevia too. Huh. But for people who are drinking soda, which is adversely affecting their health in a lot of different ways, this is one way for them to be able to do that without completely feeling like they can't have anything that's similar to soda. Huh. Good point. Yeah. You know, I also wanted to add that I read in a book on juicing by the great nutritionist, Dr. Norman Walker, who lived well into the hundreds. I mean, he found through his research that raw spinach will pose no problem and will not cause kidney stones. But when spinach is cooked, the oxalic acid becomes a dead and irritating substance to the system and binds irreversibly with calcium, increasing your chances of developing kidney stones. Well, so somebody who has had a history of kidney stones, like a friend of mine in St. Louis recently they can eat as much spinach that's raw as they want, just not cooked spinach. That's right. Now, what, does that apply to Swiss chard? Does that also have oxalate? I don't know. It's a good okay. question. Yeah. So that would be something somebody should check on because Swiss chard is similar to spinach and probably also kale, those green leafy vegetables like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't see those on the list. I know rhubarb is, but not them. Yeah, but it'd probably be smart for them to check. Yeah, of course. All right, next up are struvite stones, and they're due to an infection, especially a urinary tract infection, and they can grow very quickly and can get to be pretty large. And oftentimes with these, you won't even know that you have one because they cause little or no pain. Uh, these can develop into the infamous staghorn stone, named after the stag deer, since they often form the shape of its horns because of the way they grow to fill the inside of the kidney. Then there's uric acid stones, which are overall the second most common kidney stones after calcium stones, uh, accounting for about 10% of all kidney stones. And they also happen to be the most common stones in children. Uh, they can occur in people who don't drink enough fluids or who lose too much fluid overall. Uh, they can also occur in people who eat very high protein diets and of course in people who have gout. And then there's cysteine stones, which are very rare, accounting for about 1% to 2% of all kidney stones, and are due to a hereditary disorder called cysteineuria, which causes large amounts of the amino acid cysteine to end up in your urine and your kidneys, leading to cysteine stone formation. All right. So those are the different types of stones. So now if somebody has one, 
what kind of symptoms do they experience and why do they have those particular types of symptoms? Well, what's really interesting about kidney stones is that sometimes you can have them for extended periods of time without any symptoms, especially if they're located in the kidneys and just staying there. Mm -hmm. Now, if a kidney stone starts to move around within your kidneys, then you can experience pain in the side and back just below the ribs. If a kidney stone starts to travel outside the kidney and into the ureter, which again is the tube that connects the kidney to the bladder and is normally where urine travels, uh, the pain from this can be pretty severe and it can change in location and severity as the stone shifts to different locations. And the pain can also radiate to the lower abdomen and groin. Now, many people also have remarked that the pain from a kidney stone is far worse than the pain of childbirth. And the pain also tends to come in waves and fluctuate in intensity. Other signs and symptoms of kidney stones include pain on urination, pink, red, or brown urine, cloudy or foul-smelling urine, nausea and vomiting, uh, the persistent need to urinate and urinating more often than usual, uh, fevers and chills if an infection is present, and urinating small amounts of urine. Now, a big reason for a lot of these symptoms is the fact that kidney stones come in all shapes and sizes, and they aren't necessarily round. In fact, you know, they can have rough edges like a piece of broken glass and can tear tissue causing bleeding and severe pain when they move around. Uh, you know, it's time to seek medical attention when, you know, the pain is so severe that you can't sit still or find a comfortable position. Or if the pain is accompanied by nausea and vomiting or by fever and chills, or if there's blood in your urine, or if you have difficulty passing urine. Yes, my friend I was mentioning in St. Louis, the only thing she was experiencing was the constant need to urinate. It's like she, it just never stopped. There wasn't really any pain going on. It was just, she always felt like she had to go pee. And even after she just went to the bathroom and then just wouldn't go away. Wow. Now, if somebody has a possible kidney stone, what is the best way of diagnosing it to make sure that you, they get a proper diagnosis and a proper treatment plan? Well, you know, there's several objective diagnostic tests that can detect kidney stones. Uh, they can be seen on a regular x-ray, and sometimes they're incidentally found on x-rays, even though the x-rays weren't taken for that purpose. Uh, there is a specific x-ray called a KUB, which stands for kidney, ureter, bladder, and this can be ordered to detect kidney stones. An ultrasound study can also be used to detect a kidney stone. And, you know, this would be the proper study, for example, for a pregnant woman, since it's contraindicated to receive abdominal x-rays or a CT scan while pregnant. Now, speaking of a CT scan, this gives the most detail of the various studies uh, for checking kidney stones and is often performed in an ER situation to produce a quick and exact diagnosis. Uh, MRIs are typically not performed to diagnose kidney stones, but they're another valid option besides an ultrasound for pregnant women. Okay. So those would be the things that somebody would get done to determine if they have a kidney stone as opposed to some other type of a urinary tract condition. And what then are the standard medical treatments if it is a kidney stone? Well, these actually depend on the size of the stone or stones, how much pain you're in, and the cause of the problem. Now, if you have a small stone or stones with minimal symptoms, then these normally are handled without any invasive treatment. So you could potentially pass a small stone or stone simply by drinking a lot of water 
you know, like two to three quarts or more to help flush out your urinary system with the goal of producing urine that is clear or nearly clear. Uh, pain relievers may be recommended since passing a small stone can obviously cause some discomfort. So uh, over-the-counter painkillers are usually recommended, including ibuprofen, which includes Advil and Motrin, acetaminophen, which includes Tylenol, or naproxen, which includes Aleve. Uh, there's also medications that may be recommended that can help pass kidney stones, uh, especially alpha blockers, which relax the muscles in the ureter. And this allows you to pass a kidney stone faster and with less pain. Now, for larger kidney stones that can't be treated conservatively, either because they're too large to pass on their own or because they're likely to cause bleeding, kidney damage, or ongoing urinary tract infections, then these will require more extensive and invasive treatment. So the list of procedures used for these include using sound waves to break up the stones into tiny pieces that are passed in urine. Uh, this procedure lasts about 45 to 60 minutes and can cause moderate pain, so sedation or light anesthesia may be recommended to make you more comfortable. Now, you know, this sounds simple and seems relatively harmless, but unfortunately, it can produce some uncomfortable side effects, including blood in the urine, bruising on the back or abdomen, bleeding around the kidney and other adjacent organs, and discomfort as the stone fragments pass through the urinary tract. Another potential treatment is the surgical removal of larger stones, especially if sound wave therapy has been tried and was unsuccessful. Another option is to use a scope to locate a stone that is lodged in one of the ureters and then either snare it or break it into smaller pieces that will allow them to pass in the urine. And then if the stones are being caused by overactive parathyroid glands, then the most common treatment for these is the removal of one or both of the glands or just the removal of a non-cancerous benign tumor that tends to cause this called an adenoma. Okay. We went over that to some extent on the episode having to do with endocrine system glands. All right. So now those are the standard medical treatments. Are there any alternative type treatments that can be used or are there any natural ways that people can do something to assist the medical treatment so that it gets the best result with the least side effects? Uh, the answer to that is yes. And as far as alternatives for kidney stones are concerned, I've actually developed a protocol that has worked quite well over the years. Okay. Yeah, you know, if a stone or stones have been confirmed, uh, I recommend three supplements to help break them up and also reduce any inflammation that's present. Uh, the first one is a liquid magnesium called Magnesium Solution by Cardiovascular Research. And I learned about this from Dr. Sherry Rogers many years ago from an article that she wrote about this type of magnesium being you know, able to stop a coronary artery spasm heart attack within 10 seconds. Wow. Yeah, and it just so happens that this type of magnesium is also able to bind with calcium deposits and get the calcium back into solution. Uh, calcium can crystallize and build up in the body when there's not enough magnesium present to keep it in check. And this liquid form can bind with magnesium very quickly and neutralize it. But that would depend on this being a calcium type of kidney stone. Right. Which, you know, uh, most of them 80, are. Yeah, about up to 80% of them are. And almost all of those are calcium oxalate. Okay. Another substance that can neutralize calcium or help get it back into solution is orthophosphoric acid. And you can find that in either Fosdrops from NutraWest, 
or FOSS food from standard process. Combining this with magnesium solution, you know, really does an awesome job of handling calcium deposits, including kidney stones. Uh, I also include FOSS drops in my gallbladder flush protocol, just in case an individual may have calcified gallstones or a calcified bile duct. And the purpose of taking this is to prevent gallstones from getting stuck while eliminating them. Okay. Now, I've actually seen patients eliminate kidney stones within 24 hours when taking magnesium solution and FOSS drops combined. I had a patient once who had a kidney stone confirmed on an x-ray, and it had already traveled halfway down one of her ureters. Ooh. Yeah. So I told her that if the stone didn't pass in 24 hours after taking this combination several times uh, to go to the hospital. Well, she did end up going to the hospital, and they x-rayed her, confirming the stone was still there. And, you know, she said the pain was worse than all three of her pregnancies combined. Mm -hmm. Now, shortly after the x-ray, she went to the bathroom and noticed that what looked like sand coming out in her urine. And she realized that the stone had broken down into very small particles, and she must have passed it successfully since the pain was gone. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, she then asked to have another x-ray, and it actually confirmed that the stone had passed, so she was able to go home right after that. That's great. Yeah, so it was a little bit more than 24 hours, but got the job done. That's good. Yeah. Now, one other supplement that I normally recommend with stones is organic whole leaf aloe juice, since it can reduce inflammation and quickly heal any uh, tissue injury that a jagged stone can cause when it moves either in the kidney or the ureter. All right. That's great to know. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned several places in the body where calcification can occur. Is there any one reason why one part of the body would have calcification in one person as opposed to other areas? Yeah. You know, these deposits can be due to a number of things, including the body's response to inflammation, injury, or certain biological processes. And those can obviously occur in specific areas of the body. And, you know, they can also result as a side effect from certain medications, including cholesterol medications like statin drugs, blood pressure medications, and hormone replacement therapy. Also, taking too much of the wrong kind of calcium can also cause calcium to build up in the body in various areas. And, you know, especially the cheap forms of calcium, which include calcium sulfate, phosphate, and especially carbonate which is the most common one that you'll see in regular stores. It's found not only in standalone calcium supplements, but also in antacids like Tums and Rolates. Um, Calcium carbonate is cheap and plentiful since it's basically chalk or limestone. So, you know, it comes from rocks, chalk, and even oyster shells. It's poorly absorbed in the body with only about 5 to 10% of it being absorbed. So that means that the body has to get rid of the other 90 to 95%, hopefully through the urine and intestines. But over time, you know, if the body has a hard time getting rid of all of it, it can build up in various places that I mentioned earlier, plus, of course, you know, in the kidneys causing kidney stones. Now, specific conditions or factors in the body associated with calcification include infections, persistent inflammation. You know, if you remember, inflammation is an underlying factor for nine of the top 10 causes of death, including the number one cause, which is cardiovascular disease. For example, arterial sclerosis is the buildup of calcium in the arteries and can be deadly. And I've also seen quite often on x-rays calcium buildup in the abdominal aorta, which is also not a good sign. No. 
uh, calcium metabolism disorders that cause hypercalcemia, which is too much calcium in the blood, can occur. And we went over some of these in our calcium and magnesium podcast, which was episode number 60, and our parathyroid and thyroid podcast episode number 69. Of all these, the most notable condition was hyperparathyroidism, which is where the parathyroid glands, which are four tiny rice-sized glands located behind the thyroid gland in the neck, uh, produce too much parathyroid hormone, which results in too much calcium in the blood. Also, there's genetic or autoimmune disorders that affect the skeletal system and connective tissues. And one of these autoimmune disorders is scleroderma, which we'll be discussing a little later on. Another autoimmune disorder causes the body to attack the protective covers around the brain and spinal cord nerve cells with resulting calcification of these areas, and that's called multiple sclerosis or MS. And then, of course, there is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, abbreviated ALS, and also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and that's another calcification disorder. It's not an autoimmune disorder like MS, but rather a deadly, progressive, degenerative neurological condition affecting the nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord, resulting in progressive weakening and loss of muscle control. Absolutely. All right. With all this going on, is there anything that people can do to prevent or at least reduce their chances of having some type of calcification condition occur? Yeah, and most of these recommendations are just common sense and involve, you know, an understanding of the various causes and factors that can lead to the buildup of calcium in the body. Okay, because there are people that are predisposed to them because of some hereditary or genetic situation. That's definitely true. And uh, I'll talk about one of those in a second. Okay. So, you know, the first thing would be drinking plenty of water. And, you know, I'll, I'll repeat from past podcasts that that should be approximately based on measuring your weight, dividing it in half, and using that number as the amount of ounces to drink daily. I would also recommend avoiding the use of cheap calcium supplements, especially if you're taking them without magnesium. Most people are actually magnesium deficient uh, since we don't normally get enough of it in our diet largely due to a global soil deficiency of magnesium. Well, there's we, that too, but there's the other point that you brought up previously. On one of the episodes, I believe we were talking about stomach acid and how often there's a lack of it and that if there isn't enough, that you won't be able to digest the supplements and absorb the calcium and magnesium and other minerals. Absolutely. And also, if you recall in our calcium and magnesium podcast, which was episode number 60, uh, that recommendations for calcium and magnesium are a bit off since the ratio of calcium and to magnesium should be around one to one mm -hmm. instead of the two to three to one recommendations. So taking about 800 milligrams of each per day in highly absorbable forms is best. Okay. And, you know, that podcast also includes specific recommended calcium and magnesium supplements. So it would be a good idea to go back and listen to that one. Again, episode 60 to get that very valuable data. Now, you know, getting your blood levels tested for calcium and magnesium is important, but even better is doing a tissue mineral analysis through a hair analysis. I mean, it's extremely rare for your blood calcium levels to not be in the normal range. So just looking at that is totally inadequate. And remember, again, 1% or less of your total body calcium is in your blood, whereas 99% is in your bones and teeth. Mm -hmm. 
an example of this short-sighted mentality is, you know, only using an x-ray to detect calcium bone loss. I mean, you'd have to lose at least 40% of your bone mass to detect osteoporosis on a regular x-ray, whereas you can do a bone densitometry test to detect much lower percentages of bone loss. Now, the best test that I know of for tissue calcium analysis, again, is a hair analysis, which can pick up a calcium deficiency or excess right away, as well as heavy metal toxicity, which can actually be causing calcium imbalances. You talked about earlier, there may be some hereditary things. Well, there are some congenital heart defects that can cause calcification. Hmm. So it's a good idea to get tested for these, especially if you have a family history of them or have symptoms that could be resulting from them. And, you know, if so, follow your doctor's recommendations to reduce further calcium buildup in those areas. Okay. And then, of course, smoking is one of the biggest causes of increased calcifications in the heart and major arteries of the body. So quitting smoking can absolutely reduce calcifications of the cardiovascular system. Fortunately, fewer Americans are smoking cigarettes today. It's now just 13%, which is the lowest it's ever been since we've kept stats on them since the 1940s. Wow. Yeah. But unfortunately, more and more people, especially teenagers, are turning to vaping, which we're actually going to have a special guest expert, uh, Michael DeLeon, do a podcast on this topic coming up next week. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So I saw a study that came out last year in March, which showed that adults vaping tobacco are significantly more likely to have a heart attack, coronary artery disease, and depression compared with those who don't use them or any tobacco products. And then there was another paper published by Stanford researchers in May of last year, which showed that liquid vaping flavorings, especially cinnamon and menthol, were particularly harmful to the cells that lined the insides of blood vessels. And what was especially interesting about this was the significant blood vessel damage that occurred even in the absence of nicotine. Interesting. Yeah. So it's studies like this that prompted the FDA to impose a nationwide ban at the beginning of last month on many flavored vaping products. Mm. Yeah. But unfortunately, teens have found ways around this since there are still millions of flavored products still available. And since vaping isn't allowed in schools, some of the kids uh, get around this by sucking on flavored nicotine pouches to get through the day until they can get home to their vaping devices. Oh, wow. I know. By the way, vaping and cigarette smoking is now illegal for teens since Congress approved, you know, raising the age in the U.S. to smoke or vape from 18 to 21 just this past December. Oh, didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. So especially if you're in high school, I wouldn't push your luck because you could get arrested now. Mm -hmm. Not that that's going to be that commonplace, but didn't know that. All right. Well, earlier on, we mentioned scleroderma, which was a condition that our mom had for about the last 30 years of her life. We've mentioned this before in bits and pieces, but never really gone into much detail about it. So could you give the listeners an overview of what that condition is, how it manifests itself in mom, and the typical medical treatments and their results, as well as any treatments you found to be effective for it? Sure. 
Uh, scleroderma is a long-term progressive autoimmune disease that involves tightening and hardening of the skin and connective tissues, uh, potentially resulting in organ failure and death. Now, at this time, there is still no known cause for this and no cure. And it affects women much more than men at about a four-to-one ratio, especially between the ages of 30 and 50. You know, there's actually two main types of scleroderma, localized and systemic. Uh, localized scleroderma is generally a very mild disorder, only affecting a few places on you know, the skin or muscles and rarely spreading elsewhere. Systemic scleroderma is also known as systemic sclerosis, and this is what our mother had. Mm -hmm. um, this is much more widespread, affecting many areas of the body, including not only the skin and muscles, but also the joints, esophagus, the gastrointestinal tract, which is your stomach and bowels, uh, the lungs, kidneys, heart and blood vessels, and other internal organs. Now, what can ultimately occur from this is that the tissues of involved organs become hard and fibrous due to the overproduction of collagen along with calcification, and that causes the organs to malfunction and, you know, function less efficiently. This condition includes the notorious acronym called the CREST syndrome. So I'm going to break that down. Okay. The C stands for calcinosis, which involves calcium depositing under the skin on the fingers or other areas of the body. And our mom actually had calcium deposits removed from the muscles of her forearms. The R stands for Raynaud's phenomenon, which is where blood vessels in the fingers or toes spasm in response to cold or stress. And they become very cold and can turn white or even blue due to lack of circulation. And this was a big reason why the doctors who confirmed our mom's diagnosis at the Cleveland Clinic recommended her to move to a warmer climate, which ended up being Florida. Right. Uh, the E represents esophageal dysmotility, which basically means difficulty in swallowing. And her condition was complicated by the fact that she had a hiatal hernia and awful acid reflux, which over time would scar her esophagus to the point that food would stick when she tried to swallow. And she had to go to her gastroenterologist uh, quite frequently to have glass tubes put down her throat like a sword swallower to open up the passageway so that food could easily get through again. The S is for sclerodactyly, which is thickening and tightening of the skin of the hand, causing the fingers to be in a deformed bent position. And the T is for telangiectasia, which represents dilated blood vessels on the skin of the fingers, face, or inside of the mouth, causing red marks on the surface of the skin. Now, all you need is just two of the five symptoms of the Crest syndrome to be diagnosed with the disease. And our mom had at least four of these, uh, CRES, the first four, but I don't recall her having telangiectasia. No, she didn't. Yeah. Now, when our mom was given a diagnosis at the Cleveland Clinic in 1984, she asked about treatment and they told her that there was no cure, but she needed to take certain medications for the symptoms. Well, you know, she declined and stood her ground, even though the doctor scolded her for refusing to follow their recommendations. And, you know, they even put her in tears for that. Mom was pretty stubborn. Mm -hmm. Recall. Yeah. Yep. You know, she reasoned that, you know, since they only gave her five years to live and that if the drugs weren't going to cure her, then why put toxins in her body, which could potentially shorten her life even more? Right. 
well, you know, that turned out to be a good decision because she ended up living 21 years instead of five, likely due to the alternative choices that she did make, which we'll look at in just a minute. Okay. You know, so basically when it comes to the more severe and potentially deadly form of scleroderma, again, you know, systemic sclerosis, there are still no medical treatments that can cure or stop the progression of the disease but there are a variety of medications that can help control its symptoms and prevent complications. I'm not going to list these because, you know, we're not really interested in symptom relief, but rather disease arrest or potential resolution. Right. Now, you know, then as far as effective alternative treatments, well, I don't know of any that can cure the disease, but mom utilized quite a few alternative approaches that definitely extended her life an additional 16 years. I previously went over these in our podcast covering detoxification, episode number 23. So I'll just go through them again. Okay. Now, you know, our mom was my first patient and I began working with her after I graduated at the end of 1989, which was the five-year mark from her diagnosis mm-hmm. and the time that the doctors actually predicted that she would succumb to it. You know, she'd already started a regimen of regular chiropractic adjustments and tons of nutritional supplements to help improve uh, body function and minimize some of the awful symptoms that she had to confront on a daily basis. Yeah. But when it was my turn, I threw the kitchen sink at her with numerous alternative approaches, including chiropractic, uh, acupuncture, diet, and additional supplements. Uh, She also did her purification program in 1993, which I talked about in great detail in the detoxification podcast, and that helped her tremendously. Uh, If you recall, I mentioned the fact that she was a hairdresser, and back when she did permanence and used lots of chemicals, especially in the earlier part of her career, she didn't always wear masks and gloves for protection, which exposed her to tremendous amounts of toxic fumes and chemicals for many years you know, which likely contributed to her condition. And so the purification program helped her to detox chemicals that she had been exposed to. And this definitely helped to extend her life even further. Now, if I were to pick one nutritional supplement that helped our mom the most, it would definitely be magnesium. And in particular, the one I mentioned earlier, Magnesium Solution by Cardiovascular Research. I strongly believe that this kept her from producing more calcium deposits in the body, which likely prolonged her life. Now, if you recall, when she was younger, she admitted to having kidney stones. And when she took large doses of magnesium, the kidney stones broke up and never came back. So at an earlier age, she had a propensity for calcification in the kidneys. But who knew that she would eventually develop a disease that caused systemic calcification? So, you know, whoever's researching treatments that can slow down or potentially cure scleroderma They need to not only focus on neutralizing calcium buildup, which, you know, we've already found effective remedies for, including magnesium and orthophosphoric acid, but also something that can neutralize the overproduction of collagen without causing damage to normal collagen production needed for healthy skin and connective tissue. And don't forget our podcast on leaky gut syndrome, episode number 26, and autoimmune conditions, episode number 24 also give clues to other factors involved that need to be addressed when handling any and all autoimmune conditions. Very good. Yes, I was, I was around when mom had those kidney stones back in the 60s. Was not a good thing. 
And you're correct. That was an early sign that she had some type of calcium issues. But nobody would have guessed it. And by the way, they may have diagnosed her at the Cleveland Clinic in 1984, but I was the original person who came up with the diagnosis in probably 1981 or 82, uh -huh. reading through the Merck manual and coming across this scleroderma thing and Raynaud's phenomenon. I said, gee, I think that's what it is. Uh -huh. It only took another three years or so for the medical profession to figure that out. Yeah, so you get credit with uh, originating it, and they got credit for confirming it. Right, exactly. And you get credit for all the treatment that kept her alive all those years. <laughs> now, is there anything else you'd like to say before we end this episode? No, I believe that covers it all for this topic. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing what Michael DeLeon has to say about vaping, uh, along with the other recreational drugs that teens are getting hooked on, you know, based on his firsthand experience with this. You know, I believe he's currently the number one requested drug education expert for school kids in the entire United States today. And I met him and his wife, Darla, a couple weekends ago here in Clearwater at a meeting put on by Athletes in Recovery. And I'm telling you, this guy is simply incredible. He's dynamic, and, and he's just masterful at getting his message across. So it's going to be really awesome having him share his knowledge and experiences with us. And, you know, we've left a link in, in, to his documentary called Marijuana X before in previous podcasts. So I think it would be a good idea to leave it here again with this podcast so that anyone who hasn't seen him in action can get a little preview of him before the next podcast. Excellent. Make sure to send me that link and any other ones you think would be good for this episode. After that, that one or two episodes with Michael DeLeon, we're going to get into a kind of a two-part episode or two-episode series having to do with aging and older bodies. We're going to talk about the care and feeding of older bodies. And then we're going to talk about Dr. Gundry's next book, which is The Longevity Paradox, which came out this past year, which goes a little bit beyond plant paradox and goes into the fact that we shouldn't be dying as young as we are and feeling as awful as we do as we get older. So I think a lot of people will be interested to hear, well, what is it that you should be doing to extend your life and make sure that when you live longer that you actually enjoy your life because you're not in a wheelchair and suffering for the last 10, 20, 30 years. So those are going to be the next two episodes after Michael's. So then we'll talk later. All righty. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week. <music>